Well, again, good morning. Happy Easter, happy Resurrection Sunday. He is risen. Get used to saying that. You're going to say it a number of times this morning. This is an interactive message, so make sure you're paying attention. He is risen. Um, as a pastor, I got to tell you, uh, pastors, we love Easter Sunday. We love Resurrection Sunday. It's been compared to the Super Bowl for pastors. Um, this is the Sunday we look forward to every year. I mean, there's donuts in the commons. We've got tons of people here in the room. Energy is high. This is the moment pastors live for. Pastors dream of preaching, life-changing, never-to-be-forgotten sermons on Easter Sunday morning. And you're supposed to laugh there. Um, because we all know, sadly, the statistics that most of what we hear is soon forgotten. It kills preachers to think that after all this time, all of the study, all of the effort I put into this message, a week from now, if the statistics are true, a week from now, you will have forgotten 90% of what I tell you this morning. 90%, completely gone. Do you know how demoralizing that is for a pastor? Um, it's heartbreaking. But to tell you the truth, you know, from time to time, we pastors say things that are probably best forgotten. So my goal this morning is to say something worth remembering. And to do so, I want you to open your Bible up to Luke chapter 24 as we take a look at verses 1 through 12 together this morning. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. We're going to look at two things listed there in your outline. First, we're going to take a look at what happened. What happened? on that Resurrection Sunday morning? What took place? And I think we'll be surprised by a few things that Luke mentions. And then number two on your outline is we're gonna talk about why it matters. What difference does the resurrection make in our life? So again, grab your Bibles, Luke chapter 24. I'm actually gonna begin kind of a running start here. We're gonna review the last few verses in Luke chapter 23 in case you've forgotten what happened. Luke 23, verses 55 and 56 says this. Luke says, now the women who had come with him, with Jesus, out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Let's pause right here and just remember what has already taken place. In Luke chapter 23, we see the crucifixion. We see the death of Jesus. And Luke has been inviting us to journey along with his disciples and to see the events through their eyes. And here in these last few verses of Luke 23, uh, we see through the eyes of the women disciples, they followed him from Galilee. They came and they saw the tomb. They saw where his body was laid. And then Luke tells us after that, they left the tomb and they went to gather and prepare the burial spices and perfume and then it was the Sabbath. Luke 23 ends with a hard stop. Jesus is dead. His body is in the tomb. But then, Luke 24, 
Verse 1. Luke tells us, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they, the women disciples, came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. So again, picture this in your mind and see this through the eyes of the women disciples here. They have followed Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem. They saw his body laid in the tomb. They saw the tomb closed. They saw all of this transpire. And then Luke tells us in Luke chapter 24, but on the first day of the week, they came back to the tomb. He tells us they came back to the tomb with those burial spices. And this was customary in the ancient Near East. When a person died, you placed their body in a tomb. And you would anoint their body with these spices, quite honestly, in order to cover up the smell of decomposition. These spices were important. They were necessary to conceal the smell of a decaying body. And notice here in the text, the women come to the tomb expecting still to find a dead body to prepare for decomposition. But they're in for a surprise because Luke tells us they found the stone rolled away, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Now, you and I, we know the end of the story, right? And it's easy for us to give the disciples a hard time. And I'm going to do that this morning. We'll do that together. But at the same time, we need to give them a little bit of grace, right? Um, Yes, they come to the tomb. They expect to find a body. Um, And more on that later. But, But what's interesting to me here in this passage is they come to the tomb. They enter into the tomb and there's no body there. We've really skipped over the resurrection, right? The actual resurrection. It's fascinating to me that the Bible really doesn't tell us about the resurrection itself. We don't really know what Jesus did when he was resurrected. How long did he stay in there? What did he do? What did it look like? We're just not told. I suppose it's a mystery that we're just not invited to look in on. What we are told, the details we are given, are really the aftermath of the resurrection. And Luke especially, he focuses in on the aftermath of the resurrection, specifically through the eyes of the women disciples and the male disciples after that. And so that's what we're going to look at together this morning here in Luke chapter 24. Let's see the responses, the aftermath of the resurrection of Jesus. Notice verses 4 and 5 first. When the women come, they look in the tomb. They don't find the body. Verse 4 tells us, while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing, And as the women were terrified, they bowed their faces to the ground. Let's pause right here. We see a number of very important words here in the passage regarding the response of the women to the resurrection. They come to the tomb, they look inside, they don't see a body. And the first word Luke uses to describe their response is that word perplexed. 
They're perplexed. The word is used to describe a confused state of mind. They're at a loss to understand what has just happened here. They don't understand. Now, this is interesting because a number of times previous as they've walked with Jesus, Jesus told them exactly what was going to take place. Uh, we see a number of times Jesus tell the disciples, the female disciples and the male disciples, listen, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be handed over. Uh, but three days later, I'm going to rise again. And so you might think that the women, upon coming to the tomb three days later, they wouldn't be surprised. But Luke tells us they're perplexed, they're confused, they're at a loss as to what happened. And their confusion is followed then, notice here, by the appearance of these two men. Two men, Luke tells us, who are dressed in dazzling clothing. There's a lady in the first service, a sweet, dear lady, an older saint of our church, who two weeks ago, she told me that uh, her family has given me a new nickname. Uh, they've started calling me Mr. Nordstrom's, um, <laughs> Mr. Nordstrom's because of my attire. Um, and I take that as a compliment, actually. I take that as a high compliment, but I've never been called dazzling. Um, these men are dazzling in their appearance. Um, I told you about a year ago when I candidated here that the power of the preacher is not in a suit. The power of the preacher is really the power of the Spirit through the proclamation of the gospel. But we see here, the clothes help, right? Uh, these men are dazzling in appearance. And notice, following this perplexity, they see these dazzlingly dressed men. And then in verse 5, Luke tells us that now they're terrified. Upon seeing these two angels, the women are terrified. And the word for terrified here is related to another word that means to run. Uh, these women, I think, are so scared they want to run away. But then Luke tells us that they bow their faces to the ground, or you could translate this as they fell to the ground. They're stopped in their tracks. Their terror has overcome them. I would paraphrase the response of the women here, that they're mystified, terrified, and temporarily paralyzed at the appearance of these two men. But notice what they say. The two men bring a message of comfort to the women. Notice again in verse 5. The men say to them, why do you seek the living one among the dead? This is a rhetorical question and it's meant to really push these women to think a little bit more. In light of everything Jesus has said, he told you this was exactly what was going to take place. The, the probing question is, why are you here at the tomb? Why are you seeking the living one among the dead? And then notice in verses 6 and 7, the angels explain why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. The angels proclaim the message, the one thing that changes everything. He is not here. He is risen. The one thing that changes everything in this storyline, the angels proclaim. 
He is not here. He is risen. So why do you seek the living one among the dead? And then continuing, the angels say to the women, notice the command that we see next in verse 6. He is not here. He has risen. Here's the command. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, but the third day rise again. Again, on multiple occasions, as these women walked with Jesus, he told them exactly what was going to take place. But they've forgotten. Overcome by what has taken place, overcome by their grief, overcome by the disastrous events that they had witnessed with their own eyes, the women forgot. And so the command of this passage is that word remember. It's not a question, do you remember? It is a command. I want you to remember what he said to you, what he spoke to you while you were in Galilee with him. This is a very important word for this passage. I think it's really the driving word of this passage. Remember, remember, it's a frequent command in scripture. You see it in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. But what's interesting is the word remember in both Old and New Testament does not simply mean recall to your memory. Instead, over and over again, the word for remember is really associated with action. It expects a response. It's recall to memory and then live it out. Live as though you actually believe it. It's a call to action, a call to response, a call to how you live. It's more than just intellectual, it's volitional. Like I said a few minutes ago, perhaps you've already forgotten that at the end of this message, 90% of what I'm going to say, you won't remember. 90% of what I say won't be remembered. But I saw a few studies that suggest that 90% of what you do is remembered. 90% of what I say will be forgotten, but 90% of what you do, you will remember. And notice what the women do next. They respond, not just mentally, but in action. They go and tell the male disciples. Notice verses 8 through 10. And they remembered his words. And remembering, they're compelled to action. They returned from the tomb, they left the tomb, and they reported all of these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now they were Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James. Also the other women with them were telling these things to the apostles. This is key. Remembering the words of Jesus, the women now respond and they go and they tell the male disciples exactly what has taken place. Remembering, they respond. They go and tell somebody. And the women are here now, the very first evangelists of the resurrection. So this is the response of the women. What about the response of the men? We see the response of the men in verses 11 and 12. So the women run and they tell the male disciples exactly what has taken place, that Jesus is alive. And we read that the men respond by telling the women, of course, ladies, what were you thinking? Have you lost your mind? Don't you remember what Jesus said? We've walked with him for three years. He told us over and over again that he was gonna be resurrected. That's what the men say, right? No, no. Look at what the men say. 
when the women come to them and tell them that Jesus is alive, verse 11 of chapter 24 says, but these words appeared to them, to the men, as nonsense, and they would not believe them. This is not flattering for the disciples. Luke tells us that when the women bring the good news of Jesus' resurrection to the disciples, they hear the words and they consider them as nonsense. Luke, the guy who's writing this gospel, he's a doctor by profession and he uses a really interesting word here. The word for nonsense is uh, used to describe Uh, It's a medical term used to describe a person with a high fever who's suffering a type of delirium. It's used to describe the delirious talk of a crazy, sick person. It's like the disciples are saying to the women, you've lost your mind. Resurrected from the dead, you're crazy. And they don't believe. Yeah, don't miss the irony here that these women and men who have walked with Jesus for three years, they have forgotten what he has said. They forgot the hope of what he had promised. Some of you know that when I lived in Wyoming the last six years, one of the hobbies that I got into was rock climbing and high altitude mountain climbing, uh, something I really enjoyed. Uh, But there is, uh, when you do some high altitude climbing, there is something you have to be on the lookout for Uh, When you uh, climb in elevation, the oxygen levels obviously decrease, and there's a condition, a very serious condition called hypoxia, um, where your body starts doing crazy things because of the lower amounts of oxygen. And there's stories of high-altitude mountain climbers who who everything they've trained for, everything they know, it's, it's second nature to them, suddenly they forget. They start acting like crazy people. There's stories of climbers on Mount Everest, and it's cold on Mount Everest, by the way, but uh, in this state of delirium, they think that they're hot. They strip off their clothes, and and fortunately, people find dead climbers start naked because they've literally lost their minds because of the, the decreased amounts of oxygen. In a metaphorical sense, life has sucked the oxygen out of the room for the disciples. The events of the resurrection, of the crucifixion, what they saw with their own eyes when Jesus died on the cross, when they saw his lifeless body placed in the tomb, their hopes were gone. Their world came crashing down. And as a result, the air was sucked out and they're confused. They've forgotten the hope of what Jesus has promised. It's easy to pick on the disciples here like I've been doing. But I actually appreciate the honesty here in the text. I appreciate the honesty, the wrestling that we see here in the disciples. Because I think for most of us, we can relate to this. Have you ever been in a situation similar to this where everything you thought you knew about God, you began to wonder, you began to doubt, you forget. Sometimes, especially in times of extreme struggle, it seems like everything you once knew about God is gone. 
that the troubles of life have gotten in the way. And like the disciples, you might even question God. Life sucks the air out of the room. And we live like we don't remember what we know in our mind to be true. One of the truths we see here in the passage that I think we can relate to, we can resonate with, is just like the disciples, sometimes in despair, we fail to remember the hope of what he has promised. Sometimes, just like the disciples here in the passage, sometimes in life, in despair, we fail to remember the hope of what he has promised. So what should we do when we find ourselves in moments like that? What happens next? Notice verse 12. Verse 12 tells us, but Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen wrappings only, and he went away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Luke tells us that having heard now the report of the women that Jesus is alive, that the tomb is empty, Peter runs to the tomb. Peter is a man of action, and we see him springing into action here. He runs to the tomb, he stoops down, he looks in, and he sees in there in the tomb only the linen wrappings and nothing else, no body. But what's interesting is what Luke tells us Peter then does. Luke tells us, having stooped down and peered into the tomb, Peter leaves. He goes away to his home, marveling at what had happened. Now, if you pick up different commentaries on the Gospel of Luke, a lot of them will focus on this word marvel, because the particular word for marvel here, it can be used to describe both a negative response and a positive response. So some commentators say, listen, when Peter was marveling at what happened, he was still filled with unbelief. He was still filled with doubt. He was still filled with confusion. He doesn't understand what's going on, and there's no indication here in the text that he tells anybody. Other commentators say, no, the word marvel here, it's used more positively, and Peter is filled with wonder and amazement and worship, and he's so excited that Jesus is alive. So which is it? When Peter marvels, Is he filled with unbelief or is he filled with wonder? Perhaps Luke leaves it intentionally unclear. Perhaps Luke doesn't give us enough information to know for sure because perhaps Luke wants us to see the empty tomb through the eyes of Peter. Daryl Bach, who's a professor at Dallas Seminary, he's one of the world's leading scholars on the Gospel of Luke, he says that this unit leaves us with a picture of Peter peeking into the tomb and seeing the empty grave clothes. Those empty grave clothes as well as the empty tomb raise the question of what happened to Jesus. And Luke will answer that question, but there is a question he says that we must answer. He says it's a moment of reflection, of decision, and faith, asking, is not the resurrection what Jesus promised? Is Jesus indeed alive to carry out God's plan after all? He says these are questions not only for Peter, but for all who relive this moment 
through Luke's retelling of the story. What else can explain these events? He says the story is not over. The apparent end has become a new beginning. In other words, I do think Luke doesn't give us enough information to know for sure. And that this verse here is an invitation for you and I to step into Peter's shoes, to look into the empty tomb and ask the question, what do I believe about the evidence here before me? So before we go any further this morning, let me ask you, what do you think about the empty tomb? What do you think about the claim that this Jesus died on the cross? He took on his body the sin of the world. But after being placed in the tomb, three days later, he rose from the dead. What do you, what do you think about that? What does Jesus' resurrection Mean? If indeed it is true, then, then what does the resurrection of Jesus mean for you? Or what are you going to do with the evidence of the empty tomb? Listen, this morning, I don't think I have to convince you to believe that we live in a broken world. You open any newspaper, uh, you see the events going on in our country, all over the world. I don't think you need any convincing that we live in a broken world. What I might need to convince you of is why we live in a broken world. The reality is the reason we live in a broken world is because we have broken it. We are responsible for this mess in which we live. All of the war, all of the hate, all of the sin, all of the ugliness is here because of us. That's the bad news. And the bad news gets worse because the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. That the death Jesus died, you deserve, I deserve. But the good news, the response that we're supposed to be driven to as we see the evidence of the empty tomb. The good news of the gospel is that when Jesus died, he died in your place, in my place. He paid the penalty for your sin and mine, but resurrected, he offers to us new life in him. And so let me ask you the question, what are you going to believe about the empty tomb? The overwhelming evidence of Scripture is that the only option for our salvation is to trust in Jesus' death for you. The empty tomb is the proof of it. So listen, this morning, I'm going to ask you, as I ask every week, if you've trusted in this one who died and rose again for you. Those of you here in this room, those of you watching online, if you've never really stopped to consider, to peer into the empty tomb as Peter does here and to ask yourself the question, what do I believe about this man? I want to offer to you the opportunity right where you're seated to trust in him. The good news of the gospel is that there's nothing you do because Jesus has paid it all. The only thing we bring to this equation is the reality of our own sin. And we trust that in him we have forgiveness. And so if you've not trusted in him, again, I want to offer to you the invitation to put your faith in him and to leave here knowing 
that your sins are forgiven, that you are redeemed, that you are reconciled, you are loved, and you are invited to live out this new resurrection life in Jesus. And that brings us to number two on your outline, why it matters. Having seen the events here in Luke chapter 24, 1 to 12, now let's talk about why it matters. And in case you've already forgotten what we see here in the text, what the uh, gospel writer, what, what Luke focuses in on here, and this passage, interesting to me, is the response of the disciples to the resurrection of Jesus. How do they respond when they're confronted with the evidence? You see this tremendous transformation take place in the Gospel of Luke. The women, they start out mystified, terrified, and paralyzed at the reality. And then they're transformed. And they become the first evangelists of the good news. They take it to the male disciples who don't believe the women. They think the women are crazy. Peter then marvels, but then as we keep reading in the Gospels and we read throughout church history in the book of Acts, we see that these men and these women take the Gospel to the ends of the earth. That the world itself is beginning to be transformed because of this resurrection reality of Jesus. But once again, in case you've already forgotten, the, the thing that you and I will struggle with, that I struggle with, that you struggle with, is just like the disciples, we can fall into these same traps. We forget. Just like the disciples, sometimes in a world of despair, we fail to remember the hope of what has been promised, that Jesus has died for you, that he is coming again to make all things new. But the reality is sometimes in despair, we fail to remember the hope of what has been promised. And so the call, the challenge of this passage is in that command, that single word, remember. Remember. And remembering, go tell somebody. Respond. Don't just believe it, but live it. In this passage, we're invited to consider the words of the dazzlingly clothed angels as they say, he is not here, he has risen. Remember. So the takeaway for you and I is that when life happens, good or bad, remember, he is risen. He is risen indeed. When you get news of a diagnosis, death or disaster, when you're reminded that this world you live in truly is broken, the call of this passage is to remember, he is risen. He is risen indeed. When your world seems to come crashing down, remember, he is risen. He's risen indeed. On the other hand, if life is going well for you and you get that promotion, that prestige that you're looking for, remember, he is risen. When you get together with friends and family this afternoon and you enjoy great food and good laughter, I want you to remember, he is risen. And in all of life, whether good or bad, the challenge, the call of this passage is to remember he is risen. 
And that's what I want you to do there on the top of your outline. Your one thing for this week is this. Your one takeaway, your one application is to celebrate the resurrection of our Savior. No matter what happens, good or bad, remember, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Now, once again, in case you've already forgotten, by this time next week, 90% of what I just said is going to be gone. 90%, but that's okay. I'm going to give you the 10% I want you to remember. The only thing that really matters, write it down, tweet it, whatever you want to do. Like the disciples, sometimes in despair, we fail to remember the hope of what has been promised. That our sins are forgiven. That Jesus is coming again to make all things new. This passage challenges us to remember and to go tell somebody. And so I want you to remember this. I'll leave you with this. Remember, he is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you sent your son for us. Thank you for the resurrection of Jesus. Thank you for the promise he has made to forgive us our sins. And one day we trust that he is coming again to make all things new. Father, we confess that we so often forget that life gets in the way, that the troubles of our world drown out the memory of your promises to us. So by your spirit, I ask that you would help us to remember. Remember your love for us. Remember Jesus' death for us. And remember this resurrection life of Jesus that is lived out in us and through us. Thank you, Father for not leaving us dead in our trespasses and sins. But together you have made us alive in Christ. By grace we have been saved and so thank you. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.